0: Recovery Elevator, episode 194.
1: To do the next right thing, whether that is going for a run, taking my dogs for a walk, you know, doing something that is good for me. That's what I'm focusing on is what do I need to do? Take a nap, you know, just just basically getting up in the morning and doing the right things that I know are going to keep me sober.
0: Welcome to the recovery elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast We've got kelly. She's been sober since august 14th, 2018 She's 43 years old She's from seattle, washington and she talks about her experience with aversion therapy And before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery cafe re The most important thing i've learned while doing the recovery elevator podcast is we can't do this alone believe me I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code opportunity to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. Guys, I also want to talk to you about Robinhood. No, not the Jamie Foxx movie, but Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. Robinhood is a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. And guys, this app is super easy to use, it's easy to navigate, and has a quick learning curve. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. Trade stocks and keep all your profits. Like I said, this app is easy to use. It has easy to understand charts and market data. You can place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. One cool thing about the Robinhood app is you can learn by doing. Learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. You can discover new stocks and track your favorite companies with your personalized newsfeed. And right now, for my listeners, Robinhood is giving away free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at elevator.robinhood.com. That's elevator, E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R dot Robinhood.com. Okay, let's get started. I had an aha moment while answering Mandy's question from last week's podcast. Mandy mentions she hates the label alcoholic and she won't wear that label. I reached that same conclusion where I officially broke up with the word alcoholic in episodes 75 and 159. In this episode, I wanna cover the pros and cons of identifying with the label alcoholic, and then I'll give my recommendation if we should identify with it or not. We'll also explore some psychology and the power of the unconscious mind as well. I think you'll find this episode interesting. I know I had fun putting it together let's talk about the pros. Here's where I like the label. Hi, my name is Paul and I'm an alcoholic. The unconscious mind is sneaky, elusive, subtle, and somewhat like the Hanson and Jonas brothers. They're always there in the background. By saying I'm an alcoholic, we are affirming or creating an affirmation to the unconscious mind that we indeed no longer coalesce with alcohol. I also think it's empowering, liberating when we reach this conclusion. Hands down, the most exhausting part of my journey was a part when I was like, I know I just went on a three day bender and I don't remember if I fed my dog Ben last night, but am I an alcoholic or not? Do I have a drinking problem or not? Same thing. I'm so glad this part of my journey is over. I also like identifying with this label because it takes us to a point of action. We eventually reach a point where we surrender and say, okay, now what? That's a powerful moment in anyone's journey. When we reach this moment, we are no longer in denial. Now let's talk about the cons and where I don't like identifying with the word alcoholic. To do this, I wanna talk about the power of the mind, more specifically, the unconscious mind. I've spoken to several schools and in smaller classroom settings, I write the word alcoholic on the whiteboard and ask students what words come to mind. Here it comes. Low life, homeless, weak, drinking out of a paper bag, no morals, criminal, selfish, dangerous, sick, okay, I think I can stop here. I've done this exercise several times and it's always the same result. I've even done this exercise with adults in DUI classes, same outcome. These words come to mind even though data shows that 5% of alcoholics are living under a bridge and drinking out of a brown paper bag. So I am technically an alcoholic, but I am none of these things and I know you aren't either. The word alcoholic and the picture that paints in our mind does an abysmal job of describing who we actually are. If you want to know who we really are, listen to episode 157 where I talk about a survey listeners filled out. We are more educated, make more money, and are in more relationships than the average American. That's who we are. We are nothing like the words students and adults rattled off to describe an alcoholic. Part of the goal behind the Recovery Elevator podcast is to shred the shame. And help eradicate the stigma surrounding alcoholism and addiction this isn't going to happen overnight and in the meantime what we can change is detaching from the word alcoholic but before we go any further i want to address where this can backfire the point of this podcast episode isn't to trick the mind so you can return to moderate levels of drinking by saying hey look this guy paul said i'm not an alcoholic shouldn't identify with that label well let's try it out again most likely if you're listening to this podcast You've got an impressive body of work in the field testing if you can drink or not. I don't want this episode to place a shadow of doubt on your decision to quit drinking and stay sober. And if I do it correctly, I don't think I will. I'd also like to state this is a five out of five stars on the difficulty podcast prep level, but I'll do my best, which is all I can do. Let's look at some studies at the power of the unconscious mind and what can happen when we identify with a narrative. A study published recently in Psychological Science suggests that children can adopt beliefs from information they hear about their gender. Telling a boy he's good at math and telling a girl she's bad at math can dictate how good these students will be in math. To test this theory, 144 children ages 4 to 7 played a game in which they looked at pictures of 3D blocks shown from different angles, then matched pairs of images that showed the same block from a different perspective. The girls were told boys were better than the girls at this game. What happened? Boys scored 12% higher. The next day, girls were told that they were better at the game than boys, and then the girls scored nearly the same amount higher than the boys had done the previous day. Complete opposite. Here's another story. When Harvard-educated American surgeon Henry Beecher was serving in World War II, he ran out of morphine. Near the end of the war, morphine was in short supply in military-filled hospitals, so this situation wasn't uncommon. At the time, Beecher was about to operate on a badly wounded soldier. He was afraid that without painkiller, the soldier might go into fatal cardiovascular shock. What happened next astounded him. Without skipping a beat, one of the nurses filled a syringe with saline and gave the soldier a shot, just as if she were injecting him with morphine. The soldier was told this was morphine. The soldier calmed down right away. He reacted as though he actually received the drug, even though he'd received a squirt of salt water. Beecher went ahead with the operation, cutting into the soldier's flesh, making what repairs were necessary, and sewing him back up, all without anesthesia. The soldier felt little pain and did not go into shock. How could it be, Beecher wondered, that saltwater could stand in for morphine? After that stunning success, whenever the field hospital ran out of morphine, Beecher did the same thing over and over with the same results. Most of us know this is called the placebo effect, which is one of the strangest and least understood phenomenons found in human physiology and psychology. In other words, we trick ourselves back into health, proving that the brain is an extremely powerful entity. There's also something called the nocebo effect, which is what I want to talk to you more about in this episode. This can be an expectation of negative side effects if we identify with a specific label that carries a stigma alcoholic. In the book, you are the placebo by Joe Dispenza. He talks of a patient who was inaccurately diagnosed with terminal cancer and was told he had little more than two months to live. The patient died shortly after two months. And at the autopsy, they didn't find any cancer. The man had identified with a label of a terminal cancer patient and the unconscious mind did the rest. After doing the recovery elevator podcast for nearly three years, I've seen some consistencies. People don't want to associate with the word alcoholic, and I understand why. As long as we aren't in denial, then my response to that is, don't do it. If we over-identify with this label, at the unconscious level, it can do much more harm than good. So what should we label or call ourselves? Well, you can use a term alcohol use disorder, AUD, or I like this one, someone with enhanced dopamine receptors. This is EDR. Or you can try something like this. Hey, my name is Susan. I have a heart the size of Texas. I'm a wonderful mother of two. I'm valued at my job because I'm good at my job. In my free time, I like to take walks with my dog, Jenny. I'm a loving spouse, and I prefer not to drink poison. I've decided I want to make some improvements in my life, which I deserve. So I'm hoping to no longer drink alcohol. Go ahead and identify with that, except insert your name instead of Susan. After the interview with Kelly, I'm going to chat a little bit with you about how I'm breaking away from my identity. And before we hear from Kelly, let's hear from our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. You know what's not smart? Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. But you know what is smart? ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't wait for candidates to find you. ZipRecruiter finds them for you. It's powerful matching technology, scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job. And actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. No more sorting through wrong resumes. No more waiting for the right candidates to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the US. This rating comes from the hiring sites on TrustPilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address at ziprecruiter.com forward slash elevator. At ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator, E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R. ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now let's hear from Kelly. Kelly, how are you?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Kelly, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Kelly, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober?
1: Today is September 12th. I've been sober since August 14th, 2018.
0: Congratulations. Nice job. Thank you. Yeah, before we get any further, Kelly, give listeners a little background about yourself. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun?
1: I am 43. I've been married for 19 years. I have a 17-year-old son. Um, I also have a 16-year-old that lives at my house, who's my son's friend. I am a real estate broker, and for fun, I like to do puzzles, read, I like to cook, to run hiking um i have three dogs so i'm pretty passionate about my animals like take them for walks and play with them that's pretty much me in a nutshell
0: puzzles (laughs) i don't think i've heard that before (laughs) this podcast i love puzzles (laughs) yeah are you doing a puzzle right now
1: yeah i am i just finished one last night started a new one this morning (laughs) Are, are
0: you like a 500 piece gal or like a 2000 piece gal
1: I am normally seven fifty or two thousand. My husband recently bought me a two thousand piece one, but it my dining room table just couldn't accommodate it without putting a lease in, so I, I packed it back up and said away.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it takes up some real estate, and you got to be invested. And, and so, do you, do you? what's your strategy with puzzles? Do you do the borders first? How do you do it?
1: Absolutely, I cannot do any. I, I won't even like. I sort through all the pieces, see all the border pieces out. And if for some reason while I'm doing the border, if I've missed a couple, I cannot put any other piece of the puzzle together, even if I see, oh, these two go together until that border is complete.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. Uh, I'm curious to see if anybody's any different when doing the puzzles. And, and then once you get that corner piece figured out, it's like, boom, I can really see the progress.
1: Yeah, it comes together like a puzzle.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about something else that's puzzling, addiction. Okay, that was super lame, but you get the point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Give listeners a little background about your drinking. Describe your drinking habits, how much you drank, when you started, when you tried to stop. Did you ever attempt to regulate, put rules into place? And yeah, take a little bit of time, as much time as you'd like, and take us from when you started to today and try to include dates, you know, your ages, you're 43 right now. Give us a chronological order and, and I'm excited to hear about it.
1: Okay, Um, I'm not really sure when I had my first drink. My dad was a big-time alcoholic, so there was always alcohol around the house. I want to say I was probably less than 10 the first time I tried alcohol. Uh, You know, my mom had cocaine in the house one time. I did cocaine at 11. Spent my teen years, you know, dabbling in marijuana, different drugs. You know, I, I smoked crack cocaine a couple times in my late teens, early 20s. To kind of drink through my, uh, the beginning of my 20s, it was mostly like a, a party thing. You know, I'd go out on the weekends with my friends, and you know, when I turned 21, of course, I was going out every night, um, but I never considered that I had a problem with alcohol. I figured it was just me being young. Well, then I had my son at 26, and I could probably count on both hands the number of times that I drank through my 20s and 30s. I, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom for a lot of that time. I, I didn't have time or it, it just it didn't interest me. I mean, we didn't even keep alcohol in the house. It wasn't until I was 38, I had a bariatric, a weight loss surgery. And before you have weight loss surgery, they go through this whole psychological interview, your 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 history with drugs and alcohol, your family history to see if you're a risk to have a transfer addiction. Some people will transfer their food addiction to alcohol or drugs or shopping or gambling or whatever. Huh. And I was, yeah. I was, How do they test I was that? Being, um, you, you go to a therapist. I want to say I had to go to like four or five interviews. I had to fill out tons of paperwork. And I was, I want to say for the most part, pretty honest about my drug and alcohol path. But I think that they probably deemed me low risk because I hadn't been drinking. I mean, I, I, I literally never drank you know, it wasn't an issue for me. So I had the surgery and I, I didn't think that I would have this problem. And fast forward eight months after my surgery, um, I had a, a traumatic experience involving my older brother. And I came home, he was in the hospital, he said, he's on the street, he's an IV meth heroin user. And um, anyway, he I was in the hospital with him, something horrible happened. I stopped and bottle, bought a bottle of wine. And I don't think that I finished that bottle of wine. I probably had a glass or two out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, this was very unusual for me. It just sounded good for some reason. Well, over the next, so I was 39 at that point. So over the next four years, up until recently, you know, that glass of wine turned into two, turned into a bottle, turned into two bottles, turned into me drinking at lunch, you know, pretty much drinking all day long.
0: And can I ask you a question about the, Mm -hmm. the surgery you had? What was that surgery? because yeah, I think that might be important in your story can you tell us a little bit more about that
1: yeah I had a, a gas a sleeve gastrectomy which basically they take your stomach and they cut the majority of it out and it turns your stomach into the size of a banana
0: okay okay so, and so did you lose a lot of weight after that is
1: I did I I struggled with my weight most of my adult life I i was probably at hundred ninety pounds when I had the surgery I was 135 after the surgery, Um, and then actually two years after I had that surgery, I had some complications from it, so I went and had a revision into a mini gastric bypass. I've had actually two bariatric surgeries in the past
0: years. Would you say you had an issue with food prior to the surgery?
1: Absolutely. I I always ate pretty healthy. I loved to cook, but it was more of a quantity thing. Like I would just eat massive amounts of food, you know.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong it. with some of the terminology in regard to food. It's not in my realm, but uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for clarifying that. And I'll let you pick up where you left yeah. off. Sorry for the interruption.
1: Okay, so so anyway, back to my drinking progression. Um, it got to the point where it was affecting my family relationships. You know, my son was very very angry. I had a couple of scary incidents involving my son and my alcohol use, and that it, it just escalated. Um, there was a time when I did try to regulate. You know, I would say, "Well, I'm only like going to have." one bottle of wine and I won't start drinking until after dinner or, you know, I only drink on the weekends or, you know, I only drink when I go out with friends. Well, you know, that, that didn't last very long, you know, because once you start your, or for me anyway, it, it was like, I couldn't stop, you know, one bottle, I would be calling an Uber to go to the store to get another one, you know?
0: <laughs> oh yeah. No, I, I get it. <laughs> me yeah. and a lot of listeners as well. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, or drive myself, which is even scarier. I did a lot of drinking and driving over the past four years, you know, something I'm not proud of, but I did it. You know, I'm not alone in this. You know, I'm just damn lucky that I never got pulled over, never killed anybody, never killed myself, you know. It's just dumb luck, I think. So, yeah, so it just got to the point where last February I decided to do an IOP. It was a a five-day-a-week, three hours-a-day, you know, outpatient treatment. And I quit after three and a half weeks.
0: What, you you quit drinking Mm -hmm. after three and a half weeks of doing the program or you quit the program after three and a half weeks?
1: I quit the program, yeah. It was the five weeks where you go three hours a day and then I want to say it was like six weeks where you go a couple times a week and then like a 12 week and during that time you need to go to AA meetings and get your slips signed and, you know, do all that stuff and you have to take, you know, urinals, random UAs to make sure you're not drinking and it it wasn't a good experience for me and, you know, I, I quit for two reasons after three and a half weeks I wanted to drink. Uh, being the main one. And and two, it was a really negative experience for me being in that class for three hours a day. And even AA meetings for that matter were not a good experience for me. I know that everybody doesn't have that experience, but that was just mine.
0: Well, Kelly, with something as puzzling as addiction, okay, I'll stop <laughs> puzzling. Um, you know, seriously, with something as, as deep at the heart and soul levels, addiction set and setting are very important. And I'm with you on you know, some of my, I love AA, great program, but sometimes you go in there and there's a lot of people getting their court order slips signed and, and they bring energy. They don't want to be there. Some of them don't even want to be sober. And it sounds like with your IOP, just the energy wasn't right in the room. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Yeah, it was it was that um, most people I think of um, the class I was in uh, during the three and a half weeks, people kind of go in and out as they're finishing and starting. There probably was maybe twelve different participants in my three and a half weeks that I was there, and I, only one other person wasn't court ordered or wasn't there because they'd been caught drinking on the job and needed to keep their job. So there was one other lady and myself, we were the only people that were there voluntarily. And, you know, I know people do get sober by going there, you know, being court ordered or whatever, but for the most part, you're right. The people didn't want to be there. It was more of an obligation. It was a chore. And then the other reason for me, it was really negative was the lady who ran the group, nice lady, but all I heard for three and a half weeks was about her alcoholism and all the crappy things that happened to her life, her DUI, her kid with feel alcohol syndrome. And it was constantly berating us. We're alcoholics. I have to identify myself as an alcoholic every day. I have to stand up in the meeting and say, I'm Kelly, I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. You know, go to AA meetings, do the same thing. And in my mind, I just, it was like I was focusing on the negative aspects of myself rather than. I'm a mother, I'm a wife, you know, I'm a career woman, I'm, you know, I'm all these other things, you know, alcoholism doesn't define me, you know, that's not who I am. I don't wake up in the morning and go, God, you're an alcoholic, Kelly. You know, of course, those thoughts are in your mind, but that's, that's not how I'm going to call, talk about myself. You know, it's like saying I'm ugly or, you know, I'm unsuccessful or it's, it's, to me, it was just a really negative way to talk about myself. And, you know, they would say things like, well, you know, your dad was an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic. You know, I have all this alcoholism and drug abuse in your family. Your kid's going to be an alcoholic too. <laughs> At the time he was 16, I'm going, look, whatever happens to him in the future, I have no control over. I don't want to sit here and dwell on that and go, oh, God, you know, I've, I, you know, condemned my child to a life of alcoholism. So thank you very much for pointing that out. <laughs>
0: yeah, I definitely don't subscribe to any of that thinking, and I like what you said about the defining role of the word, that alcoholic, that can play in someone's life. I've broken up officially with that word on this podcast several times. It is what it is. You call me alcoholic, fine. That's totally fine, but it does not define me either. So I like what you said there. And I want to back it up a little bit. And in fact, after the IOP, we're going to talk about the Chic Shadle program in Seattle, which is exciting, but I want to back it up a little bit. And it's just fascinating, addiction. I love what I do. And I've never heard about, so the surgery, I learned something new about that, but the transfer risk. And if I understood you correctly, the transfer risk was they interview you. You were honest at the time. You said, and you can only count it like a couple handfuls or maybe on one hand or two, the amount of times you drank in your 20s. But the transfer risk was to see if you would almost pick up a different addiction than food after that. Am I correct? Was that what that was?
1: Exactly. Because you, you, I physically can't eat anymore. I mean, I can eat, but not in the quantities and I don't get that same satisfaction that I had. You know like you get satisfaction from drinking or drugs I don't I didn't get that anymore from food so they they call it a transfer addiction a lot of people end up with them as a matter of fact I know a lot of people who've had bariatric surgery who then go on to be alcoholics
0: it's very common. Kelly uh, to be honest with you I don't know of anybody who's quit drinking that hasn't experienced Well, I can't say that anybody The majority of people I know, including myself on this microphone, I experienced transfer addictions after I quit drinking and that for me Mm -hmm. looked like work. It looked like exercise. It looked like chewing tobacco, cigarettes, starting to abuse my ADD meds. And Mm -hmm. after you went from food to the alcohol, did you have a moment where you look back and you're like, wait a second, food wasn't the problem. Alcohol might not be the problem. Did you, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. I think we're getting ahead of of ourselves with that actually. Um, (laughs) But do you see what I'm getting at?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I'm a very self-aware person and I I realize that I have an addictive personality that I, and I've done the same as you where, you know, when I lost weight years and years ago, I transferred that addiction to running where I literally probably went, because I've lost weight in other ways as well, doing Weight Watchers, that kind of thing where I I probably went even leading up to the time when I had the bariatric surgery, I was still running every day at 190 pounds where I would run constantly. You know, it didn't matter if I had plantar fasciitis or my hip was out or I had any pains in my body that would have prevented a quote unquote normal person from running. I would go anyway, because I needed that. I don't know what it was about that that I needed, but I needed it, you know? So I, I have, The propensity to get addicted to anything.
0: Gotcha. No, it's. I just find it fascinating that there's actually a term. I don't think it was called transfer risk, but it's basically them saying, like, are they going to play the game of addiction whack-a-mole after this surgery? Um, It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Okay, pick us up where we left off uh, with the IOP.
1: Okay, so I I did the IOP. I wasn't enjoying it. I actually left there every day wanting to drink more than I did when I woke up in the morning, where it was just, it's all I could think about. And I had told my husband at the time you know, since last February that if I didn't complete the IOP or didn't stay sober, combination of both, that I would get check myself into an inpatient treatment. And uh, my husband has been very patient these past four years. You know, he's just kind of given me enough rope to not hang myself. And I, I made that promise. It took me six months to fulfill it. When I was in the IOP, one of the topics uh, that came up in conversation um, was different forms of treatment centers. And the lady who led the group brought up Chick Shadle. And I've grown up in the Seattle area my whole life. Chick Shadle has been here since 1935. And I've heard the commercials. I, I didn't really understand what they did there. She kind of went over, you know, what they did at Chick Shadle and called it barbaric and it doesn't work. And at the time I remember sitting there in that class thinking, Well, what's more barbaric than drinking yourself to death? How bad can this treatment be? You know? Especially if it's something you sign up to do and someone's not it's not like you're getting waterboarded. (laughs) Sure. You you actually asked for this, you know. So at the time, it kind of planted the seed. Well, you know, six months in, I, you know, still drinking. It was getting progressively worse. My behavior was getting riskier. The blackouts were getting more frequent. And I I finally just said, it, enough is enough. I can't, I, you know, my relationship with my 17-year-old deteriorating, I, I thought, I have to get this under control. He's a senior this year. I don't want to miss any of these moments. And also, I was thinking, when he goes off to college next year, and I'm experiencing an, an emptiness, how bad have my alcoholism going to get then? when I'm not trying to hide it from my son, uh-huh. where I can just drink all day, every day out in the open, and I don't need to worry about him coming home from school, you sure. know, and seeing was good. And I could just totally picture myself drinking myself to death, basically. So anyway, that was the decision, you know, the reason I decided to end up going to Strict Shadle and giving that a try. So that just happened. I went in on, I mean, August 15th. And, no, a, for, um, and listeners, um,
0: Schickshedl is a version therapy. Basically, to summarize, it's the patient's brain will automatically associate addictive substances with unpleasant feelings, eliminating the cravings. Now, I have personally not experienced a 10-day stay at Schickshedl, and I, I'm super curious to hear about this, and it's, I find it fascinating and interesting that this is – you know, some of them are like strict abstinence, you know, AA, which was also formed in 1935. I found that interesting as well. AA is mm-hmm, stay away yeah. from alcohol. Chic actually uses alcohol in the therapy. I'll let you take it from here.
1: Okay, so they have, they have two different therapies that they do there. One of them is called a Sleepy, and that's the first one you do. Basically, they give you a light anesthetic. Um, I believe it's propofol that they use you're slightly sedated and they go through a list of questions and basically they're trying to tap into your subconscious mind. This is like a truth theorem. You can't lie during this interview. You don't remember it. You don't remember the questions they ask you. They do transcribe it. So you get to go over what questions were asked and answered during the interview. And it's very insightful. And the, the questions are very honest. I mean, they were asking me questions. I probably wouldn't have admitted to if I was conscious. So they it lasts about 10 minutes, and then when you're done with that, you go back to back to your room and you you kind of reflect. You're not supposed to be on your phone or talking to anybody. And for me, it was a 30-minute go so in my room. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, after the sleepy. No, I'm sorry. See, so that's back up. After the sleepy, you go in your room for an hour because you're still under anesthetic, so sure. they don't want you walking around, falling and things. Sorry, I'm, I'm mixing up the two. Kelly, you're doing um, great. <laughs> it's all a blur, really, those 10 days. And then it might be the anesthetic, I don't know. (laughs) Um, And then the next day you go, and they call them Duffies. And like I was saying before, I don't know where this term came up somewhere along the way, patients started calling them Duffies. And there's two different forms of it. Uh, The one that I did, I did because of my bariatric surgeries, I'm not able to physically vomit. So what I did was the electroshock therapy, they hook up a TENS unit, and these little electromagnetic pad things or whatever to your wrist. And you're in this little room with the nurse. And there's all these shelves with alcohol and there's a little bowl in front of you. And for me, since I can't swallow the alcohol and throw it up like the other patients would do, I would put it in my mouth. And as I'm grabbing the bottle, as I'm pouring myself a glass of wine, as I'm drinking it, as I'm swishing it in my mouth and spitting it, they're shocking me. And my hand is shaking and it's not painful, just uncomfortable. And you get to pick the level. So if it's not enough, they'll turn it up. They're shaking hard. And at times it would be so high that I couldn't, like after I gripped the bottle or the glass, I couldn't put it down. My hand was literally stuck to the bottle. It was spasming so bad. So I would do that, you know, a couple dozen times. And then you go back to your room afterwards and you sit there with the rag soaked with your alcohol of choice or all of them. And you lay there and you, you might fill out a little questionnaire, you know, things about yourself um, or, and sit there and reflect on, you know, your alcohol use. And I have an orange rubber band that I wear around my wrist. And, you know, during my stay at Chick Shadle and even now, if I have any fleeting thoughts about alcohol, I just give myself a quick few snaps of the rubber band, which kind of reinforces that, that negative association with alcohol. So basically with Shikshadal, they're trying to, what they do is they, with these sporadics and then what the other patients do, the Duffies where they vomit, they're creating that negative association and they're closing those transmitters in your brain that cause you to crave alcohol. So the cravings are gone. I've been gone for four weeks from there, three weeks or whatever, and I don't have any cravings. They're literally gone. And my other attempts at stopping drinking I was white-muffling it. Like, that's all I could think about. That's all I was focused on. If I went a day or two with alcohol, I probably didn't have five minutes where I didn't think about drinking, you know, or thinking about stopping and having a drink. I don't have that anymore. It is simply gone. It's truly amazing. I, I went in there with an open mind and still a little a little bit skeptical about what I was doing because what the treatment that I was doing for addicts didn't seem as extreme as what the other patients were doing, which was the... You go in the room with the lady who, the bartender, they call her, (laughs) where they have all the alcohol and that person will drink Ipecac and they'll sit there and take shots and shots and shots of alcohol and they vomit and they'll Uh get diarrhea and they get really, really sick. So I was really skeptical thinking, well, God, you know, I'm not getting sick like them. I'm not feeling horrible. I actually feel fine after I've I've done it. So I was really skeptical as to whether this would work for me. And it's almost a miracle, you know. I don't really think about alcohol. I have like fleeting thoughts. So if I'm driving past the place where I would normally go and drink or pick up alcohol or whatever, it's really fleeting. And it's it's almost like, you know, it's there, but I don't need it. You know, I can go to the grocery store and I'm not focused on every end cap that has displays of wine and beer and whatever, you know, whereas before that's all I would zero in on was, oh, there's that beer I like, or there's that wine I like, or, you know, or any wine. <laughs> you know? It's crazy. I, I can't describe it other than it's, it's a miracle.
0: Kelly, we um, can use the M word on this podcast. We can use the miracle word anytime. <laughs> In fact, going any <laughs> amount of time without alcohol is a miracle and, and nice job. Again, I, I don't have ex- personal experience with Shadel I got the email from you. I looked at it and then I was, like, Oh yeah, I have a friend who did it a couple of years ago and he is still sober as well. So I wanted to get you on the podcast and, I don't want to play the devil's advocate. I don't have all the answers, but I want to ask you a couple questions. Almost. It seems like this is like a, a, like a a smaller version of the way we're treating addiction on the larger scale, which is we're punishing addiction out of people. And on the, on the government side, this looks like jails, prison, incarceration. And we're almost Mm -hmm. trying to punish the addiction out of people with, correct me if I'm wrong, but drinking them and inducing violent reactions. We're trying to punish it almost shame the alcohol out of people. Is, am I wrong on this?
1: Um, I don't think so, because that place, Shikshayal, was such a positive environment. You can't go there. I mean, you could go there if you're court-ordered and you're paying cash for it or your private insurance pays for it. But there is no one there that's court-ordered. People are there because they want to be. And I, I don't think it's like a punishment. I mean, it, it's a brief period of time. It's a 10-day inpatient and the vibe in there is so positive, the nurses, the doctors, the administrative people. I mean, their one goal is to help you stay, get sober and stay sober. That's all they care about. And when I was in the IOP, you know, it was that constant, you know, you're an alcoholic, this is horrible, your life has been terrible, and all these horrible things you've done, let's reflect on that. You know, this is more, let's reflect and let's focus on you not drinking or using or whatever it is you're doing. And their, their, their ideology kind of aligns with mine where they're not focusing on you being an alcoholic. You go, they have a number of classes every day where you go to it lasts from an hour to an hour and a half, two hours long. And they're not, they say they're mandatory, but if you don't show up, nobody's coming and hunting you down and writing you up. Or, you know, you can have your phones with you, you can have your laptops, you can have visitors all day long. You can have Uber Eats deliver food to you. It's a very. It's, it's like your normal life, but you're at six Shale. So their ideology lined up with mine where... You don't identify yourself as an alcoholic. You identify yourself as a non-drinker. Like if you're at a party and they have a class about this and somebody offers you a, a drink, no, thank you, I don't drink.
0: Yeah, I can definitely you know? get behind that for sure. Yeah. And and yeah. what about the why? And even we'll back it up to the surgery you had. What's the why? Have you Did you address it at Schickshedl, the why? I don't know if you've heard the term drinking is but a symptom, but... For me the further I went mm-hmm. along I started to realize that damn it alcohol was not the problem that I thought it was there was you know underlying psychological issues that stem from childhood things like that but have you explored the why for one with the eating and number 2 the alcohol
1: Oh yeah absolutely I am uh, uh, really good at self-analysis. <laughs> I, these are even during, you know, my darkest days of drinking. I, I knew exactly why I was doing it. You know, I grew up, uh, my dad was a terrible alcoholic. As a matter of fact, he died at 41 as a result of it. My brother is a meth heroin user. We had a very abusive childhood physically. We were sexually abused, mentally, emotionally, verbally. I mean... I have been told by therapists in the past that I have PTSD um, I suffer from depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. The food I think was a numbing or uh, coping mechanism. And then once that was gone and I couldn't numb and cope with food, I, I transferred that right to alcohol. You know, alcohol is very good at slowing down my anxious thoughts and my mind. And, you know, I've been an insomniac my whole life, you know, and not that sleeping while you're, Blacked out is good sleep. It's not by any means, but you know, it was a way for me to fall asleep and just be blocked out for four or five hours, you know, a night. It was just a way for me to cope with the the constant anxiety, which I think is my main problem. And so part of my aftercare is that I went and saw a psychiatrist the week after I got back. I had that appointment set up before I went in. And Chick Shadow sponsors meetings around the Puget Sound, I think there's some in other states as well. And even if you're not able to attend a meeting, you can call in, they have a call in number. Oh, that's cool. So there's actually meeting. Yeah. yeah, there's a meeting that meets every Tuesday in my town. So I've been to one of those, staying connected with the friends I made in treatment, and just taking time to take care of myself, you know, are the things that I'm doing to help myself now. So I know the why, the depression, the anxiety, but I now I'm dealing with that. Whereas before I never was serious about drink, you know, dealing with the reasons why I want to numb and and zone out, you know.
0: Yeah, Kelly, these are these are kind of tough questions I'm throwing at you. You are doing a great job, and I want to keep in mind that <laughs> we're both on team recovery. Like I'm, we're on the same team here. Another one <laughs> is, do you think there might be a transfer risk here? Kind of the same question they asked you with the gastro surgery. I know I said that wrong. Sorry. Oh
1: no, it's okay. The sleeve gastrectomy is what I had. Um, I do think there is a, a risk for me to pick up something else. But one of the things that they, that shaded, you know, through the aversion therapy is they're closing those receptors in your brain that, that make you want to drink that have the craving. So if I did pick up a drink or if I did, let's say, take an opiate, I've, I've never had a problem with pills. Or if I did start abusing pills, it opens those receptors right up and I'm right back to where I was you know, drinking or whatever, you know, whatever it is, I I decide to pick up. So it's there. It only will take one drink for me to get right back and have that stuff and have the cravings come back. So the cravings are gone. Now I'm dealing with the internal stuff as to why I drink. So like last night, for example, I I have a cold and I woke up at like 330 and my sinuses were just burning. And I had that dripping down the back of my Mm. throat feeling and I got up and my family's been sick. So there's NyQuil in my house. Well, you know, I'm not even thinking it's 3, in the morning. I take two NyQuil pills and then I'm laying there in bed and I'm going, oh, shit. Uh-oh. <laughs> NyQuil has alcohol in it. I'm, oh, God. I'm, I'm freaking out thinking, oh, my God, I'm, I'm going to wake up in the morning. And I'm going to want to drink and all these things are going to happen. And, and then I thought, no, I'm, I'm not going to. Like, I just, if, if, And I, I woke up th- this morning totally fine. I had no ideas about drinking or anything. But... So the risk is there and they tell you that you're not supposed to take any, you know, pills or cold medicines or you don't have alcohol or mouthwash and all that. So I've been so careful and then I did that boneheaded thing at freezer in the morning, but I don't think there was enough in there for me to (laughs) go back
0: to
1: drinking. But Kelly, I gotta say
0: congratulations. This is where your journey took you. Nice job. You put in the work. I did a little bit of research on the Shick Shadow method and it's ten days of you're putting in a lot of hard work. Nice job, and, and there's, a, there's so many cool ways that we can treat recovery, different alternative methods. If you would have told me four years ago that my journey would involve ayahuasca and mm-hmm. a sapo ceremony, and that's where you take the venom from a frog and burn your arm and put the venom in your arm, and for the <laughs> 15 minutes you're like the worst pain of your entire life, I would have told you get out of town, and everybody's going to have their two cents on what they think about your recovery, Kelly, including myself, but at the end of the day, Podcast guy's opinion doesn't matter. It only matters for you. So nice job. Thank you. Yeah. So how are you going to get? Sounds like we're at like day 28 or 29. How are you going to get day 30, 31? What's your plan in sobriety moving forward?
1: Uh, My plan is to, and I heard somebody else say, I don't know if it was on a podcast or something I read, but just to do the next right thing. Whether that is going for a run, taking my dogs for a walk, you know, doing something that is good for me. That's what I'm focusing on is what do I need to do? Take a nap. You know, just just basically getting up in the morning and doing the right things that I know are gonna keep me sober.
0: You mentioned earlier um, that you're aware. Talk to me more mm-hmm. about that. I th- I think awareness is one of the most powerful tools we can have to combat cravings, negative thinking patterns, all of the above. Talk to me more about that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so one of the things they, they talk about at Shikshadel and, and part of the sleepy interviews, the The sedated ones is um, positive affirmations. When you're in that interview, they have, they read you positive affirmations and you repeat them back. So part of me being aware is being aware of my negative thoughts and my negative self-talk, which is not something that I do a lot, but you know, you have your subconscious mind tells you things. And so part of what I'm trying to do is recognize when my subconscious mind is saying terrible things about me to me and, combating that with a positive affirmation, you know, so that's important. Just basically being aware of my thoughts, because I think, especially as alcoholics and addicts, we tend to get lost in our own minds a lot, and those negative thoughts can be obsessive, and they're unwanted (laughs) if they come in there, whether you like it or not. So a lot of times with alcohol and drugs you drink and use to quiet those thoughts, but now I'm almost welcoming them where I can, you know, shoot them down and go, no, that's not true. You're not a loser. You're not this. You're not that. You're that, you know, you're all these positive things. Uh, That's a
0: big moment in anyone's journey. So I've said a couple episodes ago, the average person has 60 to 70,000 thoughts per day. And we when we reach the point in our journey where we can say, wait a second, they're not all true. (laughs) And -hmm. and start to be aware of, Of these negative thought patterns, I mean that—that's big. That's huge, and a lot of people are way ahead of the game in comparison to myself. I started doing this like year three to four to sobriety, and it's been transformational. It's really cool. And Kelly, Mm -hmm. what's Mm -hmm. on your bucket list in sobriety?
1: I ran a marathon four years ago. I want to run another marathon. I still was running through my alcoholism, but I was in no way, shape, or form to run a marathon. I just didn't have the discipline or even the energy to go out and run twenty miles. You know, so I want to. Start training for the marathon. I want to make it through my son's senior year sober. I I want to be present, like literally present in every way I can be for all of his important moments coming up. That's pretty much it. I mean, I'm not really trying to think too far ahead about, you know, what's going to happen in a year or two. Those are my short-term goals.
0: And what have you learned about Mm -hmm. yourself in sobriety?
1: That it is possible for me to be sober, that before I thought I was on this path where I was drinking and I was going to end up like my dad or end up on the street like my brother. That was kind of always in the back of my mind that I'm going to let this take control of me hundred percent. I'm going to lose everything. You know, I'm going to lose my career. I'm going to lose my husband, my kid, my home. But I have learned that those things aren't true. You know, I can be sober. I don't have to let this dominate my life. You know, I have so many other great things going on that those things are what's important. Alcohol is not important. You know, I, I let it be, the most important thing in my life for four years, and it's just not anymore. I, I don't want it to be, you know.
0: Kelly, we've reached um, the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions <laughs> within 30 or 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking?
1: My worst memory is not a memory. I have spent the day drinking and. My husband, you know, I, I normally cook dinner every night. Well, on a night where I've been drinking all day long, my husband will usually go get takeout or I'd order takeout. Well, he, he left to go get takeout for him and the kids. And I didn't find this out until the next morning. My husband actually, do you remember what happened last night? And I said, no. Apparently, while he was out getting dinner, I passed out on the dining room floor. My son came up from the basement, saw me there, thought I was dead. Called my husband crying and, and I have a 17 year old who's very unemotional, does not show emotion. And he was crying hysterical oh. to my husband on the phone Mom's bed. And my husband had to pick me up and put me in bed. I don't remember it, but that's probably my worst quote unquote memory from drinking.
0: And we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you can't control your drinking?
1: How, making my husband a co-conspirator in my drinking. You know, in the last six months after I quit the IOP, I was kind of sort of trying to hide it from my son and my husband and I having a screaming match in the garage about him going to the store and getting alcohol for me. Otherwise, I was threatening to drive drunk or call an Uber and him coming home with it and basically, you know, throwing it at me saying, you know, look what you've made me do. Look what you've turned me into, you know, that was my oh, shoot, like aha moment. Like, you know, this this is not good. You know, this isn't just affecting me. It's affecting everyone. Sure. You know,
0: and and what's your favorite resource in recovery?
1: My favorite resource in recovery uh, probably is the people that I met while I was there. Um, I met a lot of cool people at Chip Shadow. They don't just treat alcohol; they also treat any drugs that you've been smoking, opiate addictions, pills. And I've met a really a lot of nice people there. So just texting with them, calling them, getting together with them, and just kind of comparing notes and not even talking about using or not using, just. You know, having relationships with people who don't drink. <laughs> that's great.
0: <laughs> yeah, the community. <laughs> that's my favorite resource Yeah. recovery, too. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And,
0: yeah. In, and in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: Down with other people about recovery. It, your recovery to you is what it is. You, you got to do it your own way and whatever works for you. Having them lambast uh, Schickshedle and that IOP actually opened my eyes to what Schickshedle was, and that's why I went you know, I've I've heard people bash AA, bash in treatment. I mean, it, just because it's not for you, doesn't mean it doesn't work for other people. And the same goes for you. Just because it works for you, doesn't mean it's going to work for other people. Don't listen to anybody. Do what you have to do. This is about you. It's not about them.
0: And what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners who are in recovery or thinking about quitting drinking?
1: Kind of like what I said earlier. You know, do the next right thing. You know, you don't have to think about six o'clock tonight. Just think about right now. What am I doing right now that's keeping me sober? I think going down those rabbit holes of, you know, and future trippings about I'm not gonna have this drink and I can't go to Christmas parties and you know, all these things. I mean, just focus on the here and now and what am I doing right now to stay sober.
0: And before you depart, Kelly, give listeners your own customizing. You might be an alcoholic if
1: You might be an alcoholic if you go on vacation with your kid and you just spend the entire time drinking instead of
0: spending time with your kids. (laughs) Sounds about right. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated.
1: Oh, You're welcome. Thank you, Paul.
0: I met with my counselor a couple weeks ago, and something strange happened. Something different happened. My counselor asked me, Hey, Paul, how have you been? And I see this counselor about once a month, and within that time frame, a couple things had happened. A couple things that I would look up at the small business gods and say, come on. But something different happened in my response. Usually, when a therapist asks you this question, somebody them, I am paying them an hourly rate, this is like the slowest of all pitches across the plate. It's basically teed up. Yeah, you want to know what happened? Well, here we go. But the difference was, nothing came to mind. I sat there for five seconds, which turned into 10, which turned into 15, which then turned into me putting my hands over my eyes, and the tears came. I realized that nothing was wrong. I realized that I was breaking away from an identity of someone who I used to be. My identity was a guy who struggled, who struggled with alcohol, who had to try harder than everybody else to see the football field, to succeed in business, etc., etc. That's who I was, a guy who struggled. And it was a beautiful moment. And those tears, what we chatted about was me grieving the person who I no longer was. So be careful with these identities. If you perceive yourself as an alcoholic who's struggling big time, well, then that's who you're going to be. If you think you've got a long road ahead, then you probably have a long road ahead. I wanted to share that with you guys, and I encourage you to explore some of the identities or roles that you're identifying with. Okay, recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We gotta take the stairs back up. We can do this.